Hello, this is Fraser Rice with the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we have Andrew Peek, foreign policy and international relations expert. He's the director of the Washington program at Claremont McKenna and an adjunct professor at Pepperdine. Andrew is a former intelligence officer in the U.S. Army and a former strategic advisor to General John Allen. Welcome aboard, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we have a pretty important election coming up here with two pretty polarizing candidates. From the foreign policy perspective, what do we need to know about Hillary Clinton's worldview? Well, the conventional wisdom in D.C. is that she's a lot more hawkish than Donald Trump or than Barack Obama. And, and I think this is sort of at the root of why you see so many Republican foreign policy experts leaning towards her. You saw a letter was just released a day ago where 50 leading GOP national security experts called Donald Trump unfit for the presidency, etc., but I think the consensus view is that Hillary Clinton is more forward-leaning. She's more of a hawkish internationalist. She has been known to have advocated for action on Syria, which is probably the most glaring flaw in the Obama administration's foreign policy to date. The kind of inaction on Syria, the unwillingness to make a decision, the unwillingness to decide about uh, arming the Syrian rebels or to punish Assad for using chemical weapons. So I think there's a feeling that she would be closer to what George W. Bush's administration's policy was on, on the Middle East and perhaps also with Russia. So when we think about Hillary Clinton, a lot is made of her vast experience. She was first lady. She was secretary of state, senator from New York. A lot of different experience, a lot of broad experience, a lot of international experience. How much stock do we put in that as we evaluate her and her foreign policy bona fides as a possible president? I don't think you can do four years as secretary of state and not come away with some legitimate experience. Plus, you know, a number of years as a U.S. senator and then a number of years as a first lady. I mean, I think these are legitimate experience building credentials. Do I think it particularly validates her either worldview or her executive experience of foreign policy? No, because this is an administration, the current Obama administration, that not only plays its cards very close to its chest, but restricts decision making on foreign policy to a very core group of White House personnel. And Hillary Clinton, however well she did as Secretary of State, is simply not in that group. It's Ben Rhodes, the Deputy National Security Advisor. It's Tom Donilon, the former National Security Advisor. It is Dennis McDonough, uh, the White House Chief of Staff. It, it is a small group of personnel in the White House that make decisions. And, and Hillary Clinton was kind of outside of that. So I think there is a I think it's a little bit overblown to say that she's this mastermind, you know, she has this tremendous executive experience in foreign policy. She did log a lot of miles and, and stand for a lot of photo ops. If she makes it to the presidency, what do you think her staff's going to look like? Well, I, I think despite their best efforts, it's not going to include any of the 100 or the 50 or so GOP foreign policy experts who signed the <laughs> who signed the letter uh, against Trump. Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. No, I, look, I think there'll be a lot of holdover from the Obama administration, of course, the way there was from Reagan to Bush from uh, 88 to 1992. I do think those key decision-making posts in the White House, I expect, will be a, a radical change. I think she will want to make a clean break with some of the policies like on Syria that have kind of uh, infected a lot of the administration's uh, sort of foreign policy apparatus as it stands. I think there's been a lot of internal justification of inaction on certain things, not just Syria, but also Russia and Russian sanctions that I, I think she's going to want to shed a little bit. 
when we talk about the top posts, I expect you do Michelle Flournoy at the Defense Department as the first female Secretary of Defense. Flournoy was number three under Obama, but was a known haw- was known as hawkish, was known as an internationalist, uh, and she would be a very strong candidate. I think at state. You know, unconventional pick, you might well see John Allen uh, as Secretary of State. I thought he gave a great speech at the convention, and the state has been a much more uh, common position for retired four-star generals than the Defense Department. Generally, we like to have civilians run the Defense Department and don't like to have retired military officers at the top over there. So I, I could see Allen going in as Secretary of State. Well, she has someone else in her back pocket that she could draw on for experience, and that's her husband, Bill Clinton. Where do you think he fits in in the apparatus if she were to build it? I thought you were going to say Chelsea for a second. No. I uh, Well, where does Bill Clinton fit in uh, any organization chart? Um, he's sort of all around it all the time. Um, look, I, I don't expect him to necessarily take the traditional first spouse role kind of in the background. I mean, he is a former president of the United States. I expect him to continue a lot of the relationships that he has built up through his time as president over the last 16 years. I expect a vehicle for that to be the Clinton Foundation, sort of the access it gives to hold events and meet with other top leaders. But Bill Clinton, at the end of the day, was not known for his foreign policy. You know, the, the 90s were seen as kind of a holiday from history, that there, even though al-Qaeda was announced itself and conducted a few initial attacks, America didn't have any great crusades against for, you know, against the Soviet Union, against al-Qaeda and Islamic radicalism, against whatever. And the policies that Clinton was known for, uh, Somalia, Yugoslavia, were not necessarily unqualified successes. So now we have another elephant in the room, and that's Donald Trump. Uh, Whether or not he's an actual elephant in GOP terms is up for debate, of course. But (laughs) he is obviously a volatile character with foreign policy experience that seems to be limited to real estate, and even that is probably up for some debate as well. What is the conventional wisdom on his worldview, and is there any? Can you even track it? I mean, I always think a GOP has to revise its animal to like a crocodile if it's Trump, you know, with a, with a red, white and blue hat. So the interesting thing about where Trump is on foreign policy issues is that he's to the left of Hillary on most of them. And in fact, in a lot of ways, a Trump foreign policy would not be that different than an Obama foreign policy. Um, he has made it clear that he is not interested in having a major confrontation with Russia over Ukraine, just as the Obama administration was not that interested in having a major confrontation over Ukraine. Despite the tough talk on ISIS, I think he is not interested in putting a bunch of U.S. troops on the ground to fight ISIS. Re- I mean, reasonably so. Uh, and that principle, the limiting of U.S. exposure, has more or less defined the Obama administration's approach to ISIS. He's probably a little softer than Obama on China, even though he talks a lot about Chinese currency issues. You know, you don't see him moving more U.S. forces to Asia as the Obama administration has. So I I think he is a, a really interesting political target for the Democrats because he is well to the left of most GOP uh, foreign policy experts for the Republicans and even for the Democrats. So Trump is a party outcast, or he's really an outsider who's taken the party by storm. He's obviously become the presidential nominee. 
But at the same time, I, I wonder how he staffs his foreign policy apparatus. What what resources does he have to draw on when he seems to have alienated a lot of different people? You know, I think I've spent too long in Washington because I am so cynical about all these people who say they'll never work for Trump. What I always say is when someone tells me, oh, I'd never work for Trump, I say, well, let's agree it depends, right? If Trump comes to you and says, do you want to be secretary of state? Probably you'll say, Okay. So I suspect he will have no problem filling a lot of those administration jobs because once he's the president, that kind of legitimates himself and his administration, right? Then it's the president. Then it's the United States. So I think people will appear to help him out. And I would think in Washington, especially personal economics, Trump's personal politics, 99.99% of the time. Right. And, you know, when there's a powerful position for the taking, you will find no shortage of takers. So on the issue of Trump's volatility and inconsistency that he's demonstrated so far, how do you think the the outside world is viewing that? And I, whether you believe in the polls or not and you think he's a sinking ship or whether you think his viability as a candidate is dropping, I think most places at least – have to have some sort of contingency plan in case he becomes the president. How does it how does a foreign power deal with someone of that potential power and stature who is volatile and inconsistent? I mean, this is kind of the the crux of the of the not Trump argument from a national security perspective. I, I mean, we have had volatile presidents before. Andrew Jackson in particular is one who's often held up as a Trumpian figure, uh, you know, reformer, kind of uncouth, anathema to a lot of the political establishment. Ulysses Grant was was an alcoholic and drunk a lot of the time. You know, I, I don't see Trump sort of on the spur of the moment launching a nuclear attack. Um, I think that the concerning thing is the inability to let anything go, right? Any perceived slight, any perceived uh, slur, the the need to get into it constantly, and it's not just with the with the cons, the family of the fallen U.S. captain uh, who spoke at the Democratic convention, but it's happened in the past. I I mean honestly, I, I would not worry about the temperament except for this except for this grip on on minutiae that I think really has to be has to be worked on before it's kind of unleashed onto the the public sphere. It seems to me that he when when met with a threat or a barb, he comes back with maximum violence now. And sometimes nuance and patience would would probably be a better route in some circumstances. And he just doesn't demonstrate that. (laughs) Right. You know, the Eisenhower national security doctrine was massive retaliation, right? If there was a Soviet incursion in Europe, that the U.S. would respond with a maximum available force, which actually made no sense because it put every foreign policy decision, give you the choice of nuclear war or do nothing, right? But a little bit, that's the way I feel like Donald Trump is, right? Every single confrontation or verbal tiff with someone, it's turned up to 11 instantly. Uh, I think if you just turn down the dial to four, we'd, we'd be okay. So we've looked at the candidates a little bit, and we're getting a little bit more background as to what they're thinking, what they're going to be doing. Let's take a quick tour around the world and see what the hot spots are and some of the issues that they have to deal with. To start, terrorism in France and Germany. I was in Brussels the day after the Paris shootings, and it was a strange time for me because I landed. I'd never been to Brussels before. It was a very nice place. I get from the airport to the city center, and meanwhile, the world's kind of devolving around me. And at the same time, it's just as easy to get to Amsterdam 
or any other city in Europe is anything else. It's a different world out there now. Uh, what is your take on the direction of France, Germany, Brussels, and what the impact the terrorist attacks have had? I think it's deeply concerning. And what's concerning is not just the terrorism, but the fact that the governmental authorities seem kind of helpless in the face of it. You cannot have much more of a militarized, strong response to terrorism than France has. They are very, very tough on, on terrorist suspects. They can detain uh, suspects for days on end without charges. They have a position that's kind of a combined prosecutor-judge, wherein the, the investigator can approve his own warrant, so to speak. They do a lot of things that are very, very tough that we would not necessarily think were proper in our own country. And yet these things still keep happening. And they keep happening because not only is ISIS a symbol that can inspire Islamic radicalism elsewhere, but there is this, there is this sort of undermass, this sort of pool of uh, the Islamic community that not only is not particularly well integrated, but at this point, much of which doesn't necessarily want to be integrated into these French, Belgian, German societies. And third of all, these societies don't know what they're integrating them, what that means. Are they giving them a job? Are they teaching them that women can wear whatever they want without being, you know, catcalled at? Are they teaching them that the right of divorce is equal? I, I mean, I, I see a deep unwillingness on the part of all those European states to sort of drill down onto what it means to be a citizen of those countries. Well, and one of the things that I found to be, it, it's an unbelievably magnanimous gesture, but one that I'm not sure what the ramifications are long term. Germany's bringing in a million refugees, which that's you know, about the state of Montana to give it some scale yep. in what it is in the United, what it would be in the United States. Again, a, a really magnanimous gesture, but no real plan uh, as to a integrate or otherwise uh, uh, employ those people or otherwise make them uh, part of German society. I, I it seems like that could be a, a, a tough a tough thing to recover from if if Germany really becomes wedded to sort of a militaristic state if they have to keep things safe for their own citizens. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and the great lie that's being perpetrated, not just by the German authorities, but by kind of the, the European consensus is that this kind of immigration will not have any cultural consequences, right? This is sort of the big immigration lie that's put out there, uh, that this is primarily an economic thing. Uh, and that people who worry about the cultural consequences are somehow beyond the pale. Well, what you've been seeing in Germany for the past six months is that, in fact, there are cultural consequences. Women, in particular, will have a much different role in most Arab societies than they do in secular Western societies. And the same thing goes with the LBGT community as well. Uh, that, that is not something that is particularly uh, acceptable in most Arab and Muslim communities. There is this myth that's having some light shed on it, unfortunately, because it's kind of a tough process watching these attacks continue. But the other side of it for Germany is that this is also isolating Germany in Europe. Germany came out of the euro crisis as Europe's banker, essentially, but also diplomatically 
isolated from a lot of those pig countries, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Spain, that had taken money with some conditions. And, you know, like many recipients of largesse, these countries don't necessarily appreciate that. So Germany is already a little bit isolated within the European community. And Merkel's immigration policy makes it more isolated, particularly and dangerously from the East, from those Eastern European countries that really, having just recovered their nationhood after the Cold War, have no real interest in taking a bunch of refugees to dilute their you know, Polish Catholicness or whatever. So uh, there's a lot of elements to this, and, and none of them are positive, frankly. From a spillover perspective to the United States, we're, we're seeing more violence internally. We're seeing terrorist implements happening here in the States. When you look at Orlando, which may or may not have been sort of ISIS-related, but uh, and other incidents that are sort of pervading the landscape. What's your opinion as far as uh, the spill-off, and, and, and how's that going to affect the election? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, I think the general consensus in any uh, political uh, election is that anytime something bad happens, it hurts the incumbent party, right? So even though it's not necessarily George Bush's fault that Lehman Brothers and AIG collapsed back in 2008, John McCain's going to get hammered for that. And indeed, that did collapse his numbers. I mean, honestly, I think terrorist attacks will hurt Hillary Clinton, even though she is perceived probably as more hawkish and more internationalist than Trump is. I think when it comes to national security issues, Trump has a much stronger message than she does, maybe simply by ethos, you know, maybe just by who Trump is and how he talks, that he seems that he seems tougher and more able to to help, you know, protect the country. If I were in the Clinton camp, that would be my number one fear as we head into the last 90 days of this election, that either you have a massive national security event or just a couple of small ones like that week in July where you had four separate attacks in Germany. You either have a national security event or another shooting of several police officers, and that skews the polls suddenly towards Trump. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening uh, and affecting the election. So something that keeps me up at night are cybersecurity issues. I think we have not seen the 9-11 of cybersecurity yet. And so I look at that. I look at the sort of Clinton's emails. I look at the way Trump handles things. And I don't feel confident about where we're going in the next five years on that front. As a former intelligence officer, I'm sure you've seen the real black ops occur on that front. What do we look at here as a way to understand the magnitude of that problem or that threat? And what do you think the two candidates are looking at in terms of dealing with it? I think the fact that you're worried about cybersecurity proves that you are a sane and rational human being because our cybersecurity systems are disasters right now. Um, I remember I was down at Special Operations Command a few years ago for like a week-long class, and SOCOM has liaisons in a number of other combatant commands. And one of them is Cyber Command up in, up in Maryland that handles all of DOD's cyber operations, you know, and so forth. And this guy introduced himself and his opening line was something like, Hey, you know, I'm Colonel. He was a Marine Colonel. He's like, I'm Colonel so-and-so I'm a liaison to SOCOM, but you know, at heart, I'm just a, I'm just a dumb infantry grunt. And I remember listening to that guy and I was like, Oh no, this isn't who we need, like running our cyber stuff. You know, we need the totally teched out cyber warrior who wears his hair long and, you know, has five earrings in his nose. But not facetiously, this is such a problem for us because it cuts across so many, so many of our treasured ideas, like that the government shouldn't force the private sector to change certain privacy laws, that the government should be able to conduct 
offensive cyber warfare, right? What, what does that fall under? Is that an intelligence operation under Title 50 authority? Or is that a military operation or a, or a national security operation under Title 10 authority? Because if it's under Title 50, then you can just kind of do it with no consequences. But there is, a, there is an argument that if you're invading another country's sovereignty to disrupt it, that is part of warfare. And that should not be done without some sort of form, more formal uh, legalistic ap- uh, approach to kind of keep what you're doing in bounds. So uh, honestly, th- there's this giant sucking Hoover pipe attached to the U- United States intellectual property and national security community, and it's just being sucked out to su- to, to China and, and Russia every day. I mean, it's it's probably the number one most concerning problem, you know, over the long term the United States has. And as we mentioned, Russia and alluded to it before, Vladimir Putin seems to be having an outsized impact on the way we view the election. And, you know, we talk about Syria and the Ukraine. Uh, Eastern Europe, in a sense, is up for grabs and, you know, the validity of NATO and its relevance in foreign policy. I mean, that's a lot to unpack. How do you analyze that type of situation? I think the administration's Russian reset policy, wherein they attempted to sort of restart relations with Russia in 2009, has been the biggest failure of its tenure to date. Russia is not interested particularly in goodwill gestures. They are not particularly interested in in becoming another France. They are interested in becoming another USSR with the prestige that the USSR had. Putin's been very upfront about this. Uh, and thus, they are interested in building a, a, a buffer ring around Russia of sort of friendly or at least neutral states, neutral like Finland, friendly states like Belarus, and kind of cowed states like Georgia and Ukraine, uh, which is two states they've fought wars against in the last 10 years. You know, there there's current reports today that there is an increase in tensions in the Crimean Peninsula that Russia annexed in 2014, starting with the very recent shooting of a Russian intelligence officer that the Kremlin's been complaining about. So there is intense speculation that Russia intends to restart the Ukraine war this fall or even this August in an attempt to swing the election towards Donald Trump, which is a little bit interesting because Donald Trump has taken some heat as being too friendly to Putin. But it falls under the category of when bad things happen, it's the administration's fault and the administration's policy is failing. So if a war breaks out, even though Donald Trump appears to be downplaying some of the, the Putin threat, I suspect that would hurt Hillary in the polls, and I think Putin thinks so also. Is Russia a strong country now from an economic perspective? Is is a lot of this – is this driven by oil pipelines or some other deeper maybe desperation with with the internal workings of the country? Well, there is no doubt that Russia's economic situation is not great. And the number one thing that would fix that is if the price of oil came up. So in meetings with the Saudis this spring, the Russians have been stressing the need. They've been stressing two things. One, that the Americans are not interested in giving a security guarantee to Sunni Gulf Arabs anymore. That's just, it's off the table. We're interested in tilting towards Iran. And two, Russia, for the first time in its history, is using military power in the Middle East unchecked by any other power. That's never happened before. And the Russians are going to the Saudis and other oil producers, but Saudi Arabia particularly, and saying, hey, there's a new there's a new game in town. This is the new order. We are the security guarantor for the current Middle East. Our allies are, are the biggest kids on the block, Iran, Iraq, Hezbollah, etc. 
Um, what we would like for you to do is to raise the price of oil because that would solve that would really solve Russia's economic problems in a I'd say a heartbeat, but in a you know twenty dollar increase in the uh, price of a barrel of oil. Mm-hmm. And so, if Russia is sort of playing a bit of a game with the Middle East as a way to strengthen itself economically uh, and otherwise build its world power, what happens if that doesn't happen? I mean, is at some point is Putin a figure that that is vulnerable if things don't quote unquote correct for him in a reasonable amount of time i mean that is a big question what happens if putin suffers a no kidding foreign policy failure in in more than worse than a, a failure a humiliation i mean there's some evidence that putin got drawn into intervening in eastern ukraine in august 2014 with more vigor than he meant to simply because it looked like his allies those proxy militia rebels in ukraine looked like they were going to collapse so I, I think there is a view that's correct that Putin is very aware of the need to appear strong and powerful to his domestic audience. The post-Putin planning is virtually – it's unknown territory. Nobody knows what comes after Putin. I would suspect that he at some point retires you know, and puts someone like Medvedev on, you know, in charge as he did before where he can sort of stay in the background, still maintain ties over the security services – and watch state sort of move under move into a new phase of Russia still under Putinism and still under his clique of security cronies, but not necessarily with him pushing the yes and no button every day. And so as we wander around in into the Middle East and we've talked about ISIS tangentially in other parts of our discussion, where does the United States fit in in the Middle East now? Uh, we've it's such a broad question. It's dogged policymakers and presidents for decades and decades. Where are we now? And what do you think is a good course of action as we try to contain what's happening there and, and, and how it relates to our friends in, say, Jordan and Israel? It, it, it seems like we're almost back to square one uh, where we were you know, a little bit past the Camp David Accords. No, it's totally accurate. And in fact, it is so concerning because there are sort of two elements that have never occurred before in history. One, as I mentioned, that, that Russia's military is on the loose. You know, multiple wars in the 19th and 18th century were fought to prevent Russia from gaining control or, or parts of, of the Middle East. That, that's been thrown aside. Um, but the second is Iran has never lined up that entire northern crescent of the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, as all allied states since really the time of the Persian Empire. I mean, Iran has not had access to the Mediterranean Sea by land since the time of Xerxes. (laughs) So all of a sudden, you have a new balance of power in the region where our allies, Israel and the Sunni Gulf Arabs, our traditional allies, are vastly overpowered by the Shia, sort of the Shia crescent in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, and thus are looking to us to make up the balance a little bit. Because otherwise, they have to play by the rule of the road that the Iranians and the Russians set, uh, and, and that those rules of the road apply to things like the oil price, they apply to things like the peace process. The peace process became successful, particularly after 91, for the simple reason that the Soviet Union had collapsed and that the two-state solution was the only game in town, right? This was the only thing you could do if you were an Arab and you wanted to get something out of the Israelis. You buy into this thing where you recognize Israel and then, you know, you get certain benefits from the U.S. 
Now, Russia and Iran are going to be able to offer another option, right? The option that existed before Camp David and before 91, uh, Oslo in 91, which is that perhaps there is a maximalist solution, right? Perhaps you don't have to buy into this, the peace process. Perhaps you can hope for a day when the shape of Israel or indeed the entity of Israel looks radically different than it does today and perhaps even when it's gone. And I think once you start making uncertain all these certainties we've lived with for the past 30 years, you get into a very dangerous territory. Well, speaking of new things that that have really developed over the last 30 years, we've got China that has gone from being a sleeping giant to what can best be described as an actual superpower. An angry drunken giant. (laughs) No, we're not quite there yet, I don't think. But uh, we might be getting there. Who knows? But... China is now undeniably a major world power now, and we see them making little gestures in the South China Seas. Uh, They are making gestures toward their trade policies to garner even more power, and that's got to be something where in the next 10 to 20 years, the United States is – has to look at that and and wonder what to do next. I'm not sure the playbook as it related to dealing with Russia applies where we were able to drive the USSR to pieces economically. I don't think that's going to work with China. How do you analyze this new superpower and how the United States deals with it? You know, the, the part of the Obama administration's foreign policy that I've thought was the best was this concept of the pivot to Asia, which is their big idea for dealing with the Pacific Rim, which is that we are going to take all those resources and attention that we focused on the Middle East, which will never be a strategic threat to the United States, and focus them on China, right? And, and, and craft that, that relationship in the Pacific Rim in such a way that it becomes sustainable over the next uh, few decades. So, you know, and they did things like send 1,200 Marines to Darwin in Australia and try to move the TPP trade uh, agreement through with about a dozen Pacific Rim nations. I think there are two things you really have to do with the Chinese over the next decade. One, you have to make it clear that we value the economic relationship and we want it to continue. We've never seen what happens to China when China goes under 8% growth. I don't think we particularly want to see it. I suspect it will result in intense political turmoil. Secondly, we have to insist that China obeys certain geopolitical rules of the road, particularly in places like the South China Sea. And the way we do that is we allow Vietnam and Japan as the two sort of main corners of our allies now in the Pacific Rim to be able to project enough force to defend themselves. Those two are not exclusive. We can have a good relationship with China while still making making sure that the costs are too high on the sort of the corners of China in Vietnam and Japan for China to do to start any trouble overall. So I, I think I would like to see things like our defense relationship with Vietnam continue. I would like to see Japan continue efforts to rewrite its constitution to allow it to project force, particularly in the East China Sea, which is now disputed territory. I think us providing those two countries the weapons and the means to be able to do so is extremely important. Where does Russia fit in in dealing with China? They obviously share a big chunk of the border. They must be very strong trade partners. Can Russia be part of that triangulation effort or are we at such odds with them on other things that that's a completely different distraction? 
No, I mean, this is unfortunately the issue that the mending of Russian Chinese fences, which uh, during the 20th century were were very bad. They, there was a number of conflicts, in, including a, a, a major blow up in uh, 1969 along the border. The Russian Chinese convergence of interests over the last decade and a half doesn't look like it will end anytime soon. They both sort of oppose U.S. globalism and dominance of international institutions, international politics. They both don't like the focus on the state of affairs internally on states. They think we and our allies should stop complaining about what they deem as sovereign issues, like how a government treats its people. Neither are particularly interested in democracy. And indeed, their allies are mostly the undemocrats of the world, like Iran, like Belarus. So I think there is I, I think there is no chance that Russia and China will diverge strategically over the next two decades, at least. So as we move closer to home, uh, Donald Trump has made a big issue of the wall and Mexico. And it seems to be that that, that country in particular, so close to the U.S., uh, it, it feels like it's a little bit more dangerous than it used to be. It feels like there are a lot more issues related to immigration uh, and possible possibly as a hotbed of terrorism. What's the analysis and sort of looking at Mexico and what our policy should be toward that country? Well, first of all, they're an extremely close ally of ours. Right. And I think under any president, even under the make them pay for the wall, Donald Trump, that that will probably continue simply because our, our mutual economic relationship wouldn't permit it not to be. You know, I have always thought that the national security threat from Mexico, from the kind of lawless areas in northern Mexico, the potential migration of terrorists through through those areas. I've always felt that was a little overblown simply because Mexico, just because it's not a Caucasian state doesn't mean it's particularly inviting for, for Middle Easterners to arrive in, right? It is still an alien culture. I suspect a, a, a terrorist landing in Mexico City trying to reach to a cartel to travel to, to Texas or whatever would find it just as hard as I would landing in Mexico City to link up with a drug cartel to, to smuggle me across the border, right? That would not be that easy, even for battle-hardened ISIS operatives. So uh, I am sanguine on the national security issue with Mexico. I do think that in terms of reestablishing control over their northern border and their sort of northern lawless efforts, we can certainly do more to help them with our DEA and intelligence off, uh, operations. As it relates to the drug trade as this ominous evil force that is preying on American lives and uh, running money in and out of the country and causing all sorts of problems, is, is it time to establish a different relationship with that initiative? With a drug running? Right. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say too many things that would condemn me in the court of opinion here. I, I think we're moving towards a legalization of marijuana, which may take a little bit of the edge off it, right? We're, at some point, marijuana will be revoked as a, as a federal crime, and, and that'll reduce the incentive uh, for smuggling for that element. In terms of the drug war elsewhere, you know, it's not, it's not that easy – it's a problem that spans more than just Mexico. It also spans Colombia and Venezuela and Afghanistan and, and Pakistan and the Golden Triangle. So while I can say, you know, I think violence related to marijuana trafficking will probably go down in the next 10 years, 
Do I think opioids will become less of a big deal? No, not at all. That's still, in places like Afghanistan, the best crop for people to grow are poppies. And the situation is not any different in Colombia. As we circle the square here and analyze where the candidates are going to be moving forward, Donald Trump has espoused a very strong defense and sounds like he wants to spend more on that. Hillary's probably not going to be cutting defense that much, especially if she were to get into office. I just feel like that's a non-starter. Where do you think the defense spending and that issue is on the priority list for these candidates? Well, I've been telling everybody to buy defense stocks. I, I don't think there is any way that after this election, defense spending will not go up. I think Hillary may well increase defense spending simply to show that she is a little bit tougher than Barack Obama, because I think actually she is. I think if Donald Trump is elected, defense spending is going to go up a lot. But I think that the ethos of either of them are going to look like tougher characters than Barack Obama. And I think that will probably be good for defense companies. And indeed, our, our national security budget needs a little bit of propping up. We're engaged in something like four conflicts around the globe. And some of our units at home don't have enough money to do the proper amount of airtime and fighters or have enough ammunition to fire off at the range. As we look at defense, we see a migration towards technology, drones, away from the grunts in the field, more emphasis on intelligence, more sort of Nintendo warfare types of initiatives, that type of thing. That I assume that continues. Well, it continues because it's the kind of warfare that has evolved to fight these limited conflict, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations. A lot of intelligence, very high-end special operations, kind of 24-hour combat operations around the globe at a really low level. But the defense community is aware that at a certain point, this might well change. We may face a peer competitor, whether that's Russia or China, doing something conventionally that we have to then face with forces that are not just not prepared for it, but don't have the right equipment, whether it's the heavy battle tanks or whatever, to sort of defend, not only defend themselves, but win in combat situations. In fact, this is precisely the situation that faced Israel in 2006 in its Hezbollah war. Its military had been configured for sort of counterinsurgency operations in the West Bank. And once a major conflict with Hezbollah kicked off, it found that it was not used to conventional operations involving things like tanks and armored personnel carriers enough to make significant ground in Lebanon when it moved into offensive ground operations. We've basically covered the entire world in about 30 minutes. As we end here, what are the couple of things that keep you up at night that you look at and say, you know, these are problems that are scary and difficult to solve? I know we talked about cybersecurity, but we would probably agree that that is something that is a big ominous threat that is not well understood and has not really been well planned for. What else is there on your mind that concerns you? Yeah, I've just started CCing the Russian embassy on all my emails, you know, just to just to cut out the middleman and make sure they get all the data. <laughs> uh, no, I'd say America's best weapon and best value is that whenever there is an uprising against autocracy in some part of the world that has lived under dictatorship, people look to America to help them to do something. What keeps me up at night are things like the current situation in Aleppo, where you have a humanitarian crisis as the city of Aleppo, which is Syria's second biggest city, including rebels that we have armed, are being cut off and bombed relentlessly by Syrian government and Russian forces 
people are starving, they are being killed, and nobody in the administration seems to care that much. And so once you look like you don't care, or once you do nothing to help them when you can help them, I think that really, really erodes the ability of the United States to be kind of the defender of liberty that I I would hope is America's boon to the world in these years of our ascendancy. Andrew, what a fun talk. Thank you very much for coming on. I have learned a lot. Thanks so much, Frazier. It's great to be here. That was Andrew Peek, foreign policy and international relations expert. We're building up a nice roster of interviews over at FraserRice.com. Please feel free to check them out. Thanks again and have a great day.